Welcome to another public lecture podcast by the University of Bath. In this lecture, organised by the University of Bath and the Royal Society of the Arts, Lord Paddy Ashdown severely criticises the reconstruction of Iraq, calling it a catastrophic failure in which daily carnage is taking place. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Roy, George, thank you for those very generous introductions. I must say, sometimes I feel as though I ought not to be here, walk up to the platform, but swing through the window if there was one on a rope with a knife between my teeth or something. Um, It's a real pleasure to be here. I gather we have a disco starting at 8 o'clock, so we have to um, get through before 8 for not to be disturbed by the sound of distant drums. Um, uh, it's a real pleasure to be back in Bath. I look back with great affection at uh, the time I came here and became one of your honorary graduands. Um, it's quite a pleasure as well to be asked to come here. I was actually on Paddington Station this evening, and uh, somebody came up to me and said, Oh, he said, Oh, oh, he said, Aren't you, didn't you used to be Paddy Ashdown? <laughs> and I said, Yeah, I, as far as I could remember, I used to be Paddy Ashdown. Whether I still am is a matter you can address. Look, the most important part about this evening isn't what I've got to say to you. I guess I've got an address for you for about 25, 30 minutes, maybe a little bit more, Um, but not much. The most important part of this evening isn't what I say to you. It's the questions you ask me afterwards and the debate we can have on this, as you rightly said, Roy, extremely, extremely important um, issue for our future and what I think is going to be two or three or maybe four of some of the most turbulent decades the world has ever seen. How do we build peace after conflict? Well, what is clear, it seems to me, is that the post-Cold War world doesn't look at all as we expected it to look like as little as 10 years ago. The bright vistas summoned up in 1989 and 1990 with democracy and prosperity breaking out everywhere now seem, frankly, a little more like the product of over-exuberant imagination than of clear-headed political and historical analysis. Far from being the end of history, as described in that comforting idyll by Francis Fukuyama, history is alive and kicking, and kicking rather hard just at the moment. Far from being more tranquil, our global village is looking increasingly more troubled, and I think likely to get more so. Among the issues that have come to haunt us, or come back to haunt us in some cases, are some very old geostrategic cultural antagonisms, like the ancient struggle between Christendom and Islam, and some very new challenges, such as globalization, resource competition, global warming. These were either completely invisible or on the very margins of the debate just a decade ago. Today they are full-blooded, front and centre, and demand our attention and our action. Yet, despite all that, I think most of us will agree that our post-Cold War world remains overall a better one than the one in which most of us grew up, where the two superpowers were locked in a chronic conflict that placed the whole of humanity just one push of a button away from nuclear annihilation. That, however, it seems to me, does not diminish our need at the beginning of the 21st century to come to grips with a wholly different and nevertheless very challenging and threatening set of challenges. The problems of post-conflict stabilization and reconstruction 
stand, as Roy said, amongst the top rank of this list of modern challenges. From Iraq to East Timor, from Afghanistan to Sierra Leone in Central and Southern America, in the Caucasus, in the Middle East, in Africa, and in South and East Asia, countries are struggling to recover from conflicts, many of which erupted as a result of the collapse of the Cold War and the power vacuums which followed. Each of these conflicts has thrown down new challenges to the international community, and in each case, new and often very different solutions have had to be developed. We have had to learn on the job, and by the way, we have not learned terribly well. None of us should forget, as perhaps some of our leaders from time to time do, that this learning process, proceeding as it has by trial and error, and mostly, frankly, by error, has been difficult for us, but it has exacted an enormous price, an enormous price from the civilians caught in these conflicts, and they number tens of millions, whether that occurs in, has occurred in Bosnia and Herzegovina, where I was, or occurs in this daily carnage taking place in Iraq today. Tonight I'd like to share with you, if I may, I hope you don't think it too arrogant, some perspectives that may tentatively help illuminate this important debate from the viewpoint not of the theoretician, there's plenty of those, but of the practitioner in the field over four years acting, as Roy said, as the high representative for the international community in Bosnia and Herzegovina, day by day seeking to do this tough business of trying to reconstruct stable statehood after the terrible consequences of the Bosnian War. These perspectives, you may be happy to hear, at least in the case of Bosnia and Herzegovina, are predominantly positive ones. Here's what we have learned in a nutshell. If you have a clear vision, the right resources, firm destination to head for, and good leaderships, as well as a good plan, and the will to carry this through, you can, in at least some cases, successfully rebuild a secure peace, even after the most devastating of wars. In this speech, I'd like to deal with each of these elements, each of these ingredients of successful peace stabilization in turn. First, let me talk about resources. It helps to have the troops, and by the way, lots of them, at the beginning, and the money in the middle and at the end. And by the way, lesson from Iraq, you probably will need more troops to stabilize the peace than you needed to win the war that preceded it, if you have to have a war. Donald Rumsfeld was probably right, rejecting the Powell doctrine of overwhelming force in the actual invasion of Iraq, which may well go down as a copybook example if you believe that that should have been done, leaving that to one side, of how this should be done, how this kind of war should be fought. But the fact that he lacked the troops to be able to control the security space after the war has meant that the attempt to build the peace in Iraq has been a copybook example of how we should not do it in the months and weeks which follow. In Bosnia and Herzegovina, no less than 10 divisions, 10 divisions for a nation of 3.5 million of NATO-led troops were deployed along the front lines in the space of just three weeks in the winter of 1995. 60,000 troops. And the consequence was they dominated the security space and their authority was never challenged after that and not a single one of those troops or any one of the international civil servants who have been seeking to create peace in Bosnia again has ever been killed in anger. 
Successive reductions in the size of the peacekeeping force from 60,000 in 1995 to around 6,000 today, and I guess probably down to 3,000 next year, reflect the process of steady consolidation. Now, was this a lucky break? Did we do this by accident? No. One thing we have learned in Bosnia is that troops, plus a workable political settlement, will succeed. But one without the other will not. You cannot reconstruct a nation on the point of a bayonet. Ultimately, you have to have a political solution. At least, it proved to be a workable settlement in the early phases when the international community resolutely set about making it work. In the early stages of peace implementation in Bosnia, the domestic signatories to the agreement appeared determined to honour its provisions to the letter, while undermining its very clear intentions whenever the opportunity chose. Whether they were Serbs or Croats or Muslim Bosnians, what they did was channel the influx of international aid money away from strategic projects about building nationhood and into their own projects, often one which allowed them to deliver benefits to their constituents while cutting out the potential benefits from the other groups. Their aim was to use the Dayton process, not to build peace, but as a framework to continue the pursuit of their war aims by other means, in the famous words of Clausewitz. Not actually going backwards, Bosnia and Herzegovina um, did not go backwards since any possibility of a return to violence was quashed by that overwhelming presence of troops. Bosnia appeared to be, for the first five years of the decade since 1995, standing still, if not necessarily moving backwards. During this period, the international community concentrated much of its, election, its efforts not on building a state, but on holding free and fair elections. Now, who can doubt that? On the face of it, that would be the sensible thing to do. On the face of it, that made sense. But, but, it didn't take into account the fact that democracy is about more than voting. The hard fact that democratic norms are attained and sustained by more than elections, they depend on recovery across a broad front that includes, crucially and early, the rule of law, vitally and early, the rule of law, and the creation of a viable economy. Corrupt and politicized judges and police, mass unemployment, endemic poverty, clientelist politics will all confound the democratic process even if elections are technically free and fair. You see, and here is a really crucial lesson for peace building, democratic elections without the rule of law simply allow the criminals who ran the war to be elected into political office the better to undermine the rule of law in the state which follows afterwards. And what this leads to is not democracy, but the criminally captured state. And that's what I inherited in Bosnia in 2002, a state that had become basically corrupted to the marrow of its bone by the process uh, which had occurred because we did not make the rule of law priority number one and corruption seeped into the whole of the body politics. Now, that may seem rather obvious, with the benefit of hindsight. But it was by no means obvious in the first months and years of peace implementation in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Whether it is because of our decent liberal instincts about occupying another country, or more likely because we want to get our troops home early, we tend to hold elections first rather than establish the rule of law first. By the way, note this fact, 
that in Germany, the Allied Commission did not hold the first elections in Germany until 1949, nearly five years after the end of the war, by which time the rule of law had been created, the economy was going, and the country was anchored within firm political foundations. You see, intervention, which is what we were doing, is at best messy, at worst bloody. It is invariably attended by pressure for quick results in situations where peacekeepers are engaged in full-scale military operations against opponents of a political situation, not the situation we had in Bosnia, but all too blatantly the situation we face in other intervention exercises today. Well, in those circumstances, it may be rather hard to understand and focus on the need, for example, to upgrade the judiciary, to depoliticize the police, to rewrite the criminal codes, to establish courts, but that's what you have to do. In situations where a massive segment of the country's housing stock has been destroyed or badly damaged and huge numbers of refugees are left homeless, where GDP has collapsed and economic life is controlled by the black marketeers, it may seem fanciful to talk about improving the business climate, stripping down the barriers to business, introducing an efficient value-added tax, but that's what you have to do. What we learned all too slowly in Bosnia and Herzegovina, and what it appears to me has not been learned at all in Iraq, is that these things really are on a par with emergency relief and robust security posture. They are indispensable elements in making a political settlement work. You cannot have constructive politics if you don't have a growing economy if you can't face down the obstructionists, if parliamentary and judicial institutions are weak and infected with corruption. Reconstruction, like politics as a whole, rebuilding a state like building a state in the first place, is complex. It can't be established piecemeal. You can't do it just with armies. It isn't a linear process. You have to advance on all fronts at the same time. And this initial and nearly mortal dysfunction in Bosnia's recovery arc, early recovery arc, was at last addressed at the end of 1997 with the introduction of what were called the bond powers, enabling the head of the International Community Mission, the High Representative, to cut through the the thickets of obstructionism and remove recalcitrant officials and, where necessary, enact reform legislation with the agreement of Parliament afterwards. This was combined with a new force a new focus on making the political and economic institutions work as opposed to propping them up with international largesse. It would have been far better to have taken these tough measures from day one rather than two or three or four years after the peace had been signed. Another lesson in peacekeeping. If you have to be tough, it's better to be tough at the start and relax later, not the other way round. From then on, From the moment that the international community took those actions, Bosnia and Herzegovina has made unbelievable progress in a mere 10 years since the war. Here's what's happened in those intervening years. More than a million of those who were displaced from their homes during the war have since returned. The first time in history that refugees have had a right to return home in such numbers and have done so. Even the Golgotha of Srebrenica uh, now has Muslims back living in the community of Srebrenica, and indeed the mayor of Srebrenica is once again a Muslim. 
the armed forces, which for years continued to maintain organizational and ideological divisions created by the war, were unified in my time under the exclusive command of the control and control of the state. A program of reform will provide in Bosnia, which we initiated in my days, with a properly organized national police service. Two customs services were unified into one. Three intelligence services were welded into one and brought under parliamentary and democratic control. The judiciary was cleaned up, depoliticized, placed within a single country framework of judicial laws. A single criminal code was written by the Bosnians themselves, and that's been established. The ruling council of ministers, the government of Bosnia, has been expanded and made more efficient. The city of Mostar has been reunified. A single country-wide system of VAT has been introduced. And the consequence of all of these is that GDP growth has now begun to grow sharply in Bosnia and Herzegovina at 5% or above and is now growing at about five, uh, is now growing faster than any other of the economies in the Balkans. Inflation stands at 0.5%. Exports and industrial production are up. Interest rates have halved since 2000. Real unemployment is far lower than the official figures. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I haven't recited this litany as an exercise in puffing up the achievements of the international community or patting ourselves on the back. That would be simplistic and, frankly, rather pointless. I've drawn attention to these facts because they show in a very tangible way that post-war reconstruction can be successful if you go about it in the right way. And the way you have to go about it is holistic. One step forward facilitates another step forward. You can't have economic progress unless you clean up the legal environment. You can't have democratic progress unless you tackle corruption. You can't have social progress unless you can deliver tangible improvements in living standards, and so on. The second reason to list these achievements such as they are, by the way, the real heroes of Bosnia and Herzegovina, not the international community, they're the extraordinary, courageous, remarkable uh, people of Bosnia and Herzegovina. But the second reason is to demonstrate that with a range of activities this broad and complex, you simply cannot have progress by fiat. You cannot build a nation with an army. An army's job is to hold the ring. The politicians have to create the political structures that will give that country stability in the future. A small band of foreigners, whether in Bosnia or Iraq or Afghanistan, empowered by military force and limitless funds, cannot make a country recover. You do not build nations or create democracies at the point of a bayonet. The only people who can do this successfully are the people of that country themselves. The international community may have everything it needs to fix a failed state, but this is essentially beside the point. The failed state won't stop failing until the people of that state have a clear idea of where they're going and are prepared to take the necessary steps to reach that destination and have what they need to fix the problems along the way. I cannot overstress at this point the need for a common destination shared both by the domestic authorities and the people of the country and the international community. And this is something we had in Bosnia and Herzegovina and which has up until now been lacking, for instance, in Kosovo, leave aside Iraq and Afghanistan. In BIH, the, in Bosnia and Herzegovina, the international community and domestic opinion have worked together to achieve an agreed destination this has provided the common project around which both the international community and constructive domestic forces could gather. 
and the absence of such a commonly agreed project can seriously debilitate or even, at the worst case, destroy stabilization efforts, a fact to which the events and attempts to do the same thing in Kosovo and Iraq bear testimony. In Bosnia, I confess, we were lucky. Membership of the European Union, membership of NATO, provided the obvious destination, and getting there has been an undertaking supported by all or nearly all across the whole political and ethnic spectrum, and this made our job much easier. And agreeing those objectives and setting those central benchmarks that were required by the European Union and NATO was a key part, a key part of making sure that we had buy-in for the people of Bosnia and their politicians. So in recent years, Bosnia has benefited hugely from the fact that its aspiration to integrate in Euro-Atlantic structures, and most notably the European Union and NATO, an objective that has the support of the vast majority of its citizens, comes clearly with clear benchmarks to be achieved for the stabilization of the state. Let me make a point here as well. The second requirement that is required as an external context for the building of states is the requirement of the assistance of the neighbors. You cannot build, rebuild uh, a broken state unless you have, at the very least, the acquiescence of the neighbors or, at best, their active participation. We in Northern Ireland, and remember the peace has been trying to be built there for 35 years and we still haven't got there yet, we in Northern Ireland could not have any chance of achieving a peaceful outcome until we recognized that Dublin had a role to play. We in Bosnia could not achieve anything until Belgrade and Zagreb, Serbia and Croatia, agreed to move away from the destructive policies that they had. You cannot build peace in Iraq unless you are prepared to engage the neighbors. That means talking to some people you may not necessarily like very much. We didn't like Tudjman and Milosevic very much. The truth of the matter is that if you want peace in Iraq, you have to engage the Iranians, you have to engage the Syrians, and you have to engage the Jordanians, the Egyptians, and the Saudi Arabians. Now, coming back to Bosnia for a moment, um, we had another advantage, which has not yet uh, re replicated in, um, in, in Iraq or Afghanistan. We had an international agreement which anchored the structure of the state, the Dayton Agreement, and it was crucial, it was crucial in the first stabilization phase of Bosnia-Herzegovina, which took about 10 years. The problem was that what was required for the first stage was a barrier to the development in the second stage. I arrived in Bosnia in 2002, eight years after the end of the war, roughly at the end of the period of stabilization. A return to war was not the threat. What we now had to do was to rebuild the Bosnian state as a state. And here, the Dayton Agreement was a disadvantage, for it created two entities, basically mini-statelets. There are 13 prime ministers in Bosnia and Herzegovina for a country of 3.5 million people. That's part of the Dayton Agreement. 13 health ministries, 13 ministries of the interior, 13 ministers of education. Somehow or another, we had to build this into a state. No state can prosper, which spends, as it did, we did in Bosnia, 70% of its hard-pressed citizens' taxes on salaries for government employees and only 30% on the services which citizens sought from their government. So our experience in Bosnia was that that Dayton Agreement, hammered out at the start, at the end of the war, provided an indispensable and durable mechanism for present, preventing a return to violence. 
But in the second phase, the phase of building a viable state, that agreement became a hindrance and has now to be altered and changed as we go into the process of constitutional change. I've sketched out here some of the salient aspects of post-war reconstruction in Bosnia and Herzegovina, and I believe we have only to compare what we know now to what we clearly and painfully did not know in 1992 to see how far we have come. Basically, I think the first five years in Bosnia were wasted. I think in the second five years, we began to do the things which we, needed, we should have done straight after the end of the war. And those things are these. First of all, establish security. Make sure that you, create, you control the security space straight after the war ends. We've catastrophically failed to do that in Iraq. We managed to do it in Bosnia. Secondly, the rule of law is priority one from moment one after the midnight hour when peace arrives. Set up the rule of law and set it up properly. Thirdly, get the economy going. Fourthly, build the institutions of the state, a proper government, the checks and balances, an independent civil servants, a free press. And lastly, leave it as late as you can. Sometimes you must do it earlier. But lastly, hold your elections and then you will be in the position where you're beginning to get onto a track where the international community can start to withdraw. And that's a key and important part of it. As you create the state institutions, the international community diminishes in size and pulls back, which is where we are now. Now, those are not rocket science, ladies and gentlemen. These are not extraordinary lessons that burst to surprise you all. The fact is that we have known this for some time. We have known how to do this. If you look at the pace of interventions in the world, you will find that we are now intervening under Security Council resolution about once every six months in the domestic jurisdiction of another state. And although the high-profile failures of Iraq and Afghanistan are the ones we now remember, the reality of it is in many states, El Salvador, Mozambique, Haiti, um, and many others, we, and Bosnia and Herzegovina, we have managed to find the way to create stability and prevent nations moving back to war. That skill will be necessary as the world moves into a more turbulent period. There are those who say that because we have our past, our immediate past, has been dominated by fighting the little wars, the intrastate wars, the wars between tribes and across borders rather than the interstate wars, all history will show us in the future will be little wars and not big ones. I don't believe that. I think there are very big movements happening in the world today as we have to cope with the issues of global warming, resource scarcity, this immense and powerful flow of power that is now running from the nations of the, of the Atlantic shoreboard to the nations of the Pacific Rim. The globalization of power itself, beyond the, the instruments that we've created to control it, all these will mean turbulent times ahead. If we want to be able to stabilize peace, if we want to be able to transition through this period of power change, if we want to be able to uh, avoid the large-scale wars which I think may well afflict us in the future, one of the things we're going to have to do is to learn how to fight and learn how to stabilize uh, nations after the small-scale wars, which are the features of our time. So our priority now, and here I end, our priority now must surely be to make sure that the lessons that have been learned not just in Bosnia, but elsewhere as well, are applied where appropriate. Each country is different. 
You can't make peace by numbers, and you can't certainly make the last peace any more than you can fight the last war. You have to use your own intelligence, and every country uh, has, will recover in its own distinct way. But there are basic lessons to be learned, and we should be learning them so that we do not make the mistakes of Iraq and Afghanistan again. What we do know is that peace implementation and nation-building can work. Bosnia and Herzegovina demonstrates that, although we have to remember that rather few people thought it would in the early days. We have to learn from our successes. We should not give up where success has not yet been achieved. If there is one final lesson for stabilization, it is this, fighting the modern high-tech wars that have to, sometimes have to precede uh, um, these kind of actions can take days or even weeks. But building the peace which follows such a war must be measured in decades. That time frame, not months, but decades, represents, however, I would argue, a sound investment. If we reduce the proposition to one of material expense, we find that a week of war routinely costs more than a year of peace stabilization. So clearly, avoiding a recurrence of war is better value for public money than letting states go on failing. But this is not just about economics. As recent events have shown very graphically, the cost of allowing states to fail in our increasingly interdependent world is more often than not played in blood and horror, not just in those states, but as we now discover, well beyond their borders too. A failure to finish the job first time round in Afghanistan can result in unimaginable terror and destruction a decade later in New York. As John Dunn said, a moral precept for him, a code of survival for us, every man's death affecteth me, for I am involved in mankind, every man's death affecteth me for I am involved in mankind. Send not, therefore, to ask for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. And nor is this just about prevention, incidentally. Recovering states make sound allies, promising trading partners, useful uh, partners in peace stabilization elsewhere. Bosnia is now sending troops to Iraq to help the coalition effort there, though whether they should is a different question. In short, it seems to me, ladies and gentlemen, there are moral reasons for intervention and peace stabilization, but there are also powerful reasons of self-interest in getting it right as well. And getting it right takes time, takes resources, but it can work. As Bosnia, arguably the world's most successful large-scale peace stabilization exercise in recent times shows, it seems to me, I conclude, it seems to me that we owe it to ourselves and perhaps above all to the citizens of those failed states, our fellow citizens in the global village, to make sure that where possible, that example is followed intelligently and effectively in other parts of the world. Our peace depends on it, their future depends on it, and I'm genu I genuinely believe that our capacity to live in a civilized world depends upon it too. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much indeed, Paddy, and especially not only 
the words, but the fact that you've allowed 25 minutes or so for people to put the questions to you. Longer than um, that, I hope. <laughs> longer than that, okay, we'll go on as long as it seems sensible. Um, we uh, have a little protocol in the RSA. Please tell us who you are when you stand up to put a question, and if you'd like to, a little bit about yourself, about three words, like I'm a student of economics or I'm a business person from Bath, whatever you want to say about yourself, uh, and then put the question, please. Uh, no speeches, but uh, build your thoughts into your question. Who wants to go first, please? You'll have to speak up, because I don't think working with Rovi Mike's there first, and then over there. I can take them directly, if you like. Do okay. Prefer to? Whichever way you want to do Okay, I'll sit down and relax. Okay. <laughs> yes, well, I'm going to stick with Roy's choice. We had one down here, it was, wasn't it? Yes, yes, sir. Yes, please. Thank you. Um, I'm a PhD student here at Bar, and uh, I also work as a consultant in uh, Nigeria, mm. uh, um, who I've worked with the UN uh, quite a bit, never for them, but with them quite a bit. Um, you said in your speech, um, when you took over the, uh, the government, the country was corrupt to the bone. And I just wondered, did that include the UN staff, who I imagine were advising the government quite heavily at that point in time, were probably running numerous government organs at that point in time? Um, and if so, what percentage of UN staff would you say were corrupt at that point in time? Or would you say the UN system is completely immune to the corruption we see in countries which is often worse? No, of course it isn't. Um, look, it, the operation of Bosnia-Herzegovina wasn't run by the United Nations. Um, there's an interesting point here. Forgive me if I go into some technicalities. Um, the UN running organizations like um, what's happening in Sierra Leone, what's happening in Darfur, it's a UN-operated organization. Bosnia-Herzegovina um, was run by what's called a coalition of the willing. Um, it was legitimized by UN Security Council resolution, and I used to have to go to the Security Council to report back to them on the use of my powers uh, twice a year. But the actual board of management uh, that ran the international operation in Bosnia and Herzegovina was called the Peace Implementation Council. And it basically consisted of all those countries, 30 or 40, who had made a contribution to peace in Bosnia, either by providing troops or providing money. And I used to report to them every week. Um, but uh, report to their ambassadors. So the operation in Bosnia and Herzegovina had a UN element, largely reforming the police, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, UNDP, the European Union, a veritable alphabet soup of organizations. Um, but it wasn't a UN-run organization in the same way as other, some other, in the same way as, for instance, Kosovo is. Now, is there corruption in the international organizations? Of course there is. A terrifying amount of corruption um, uh, sometimes because any element of corruption completely undermines the moral position that you have in seeking to suggest to or seeking to bring a country towards uh, proper democratic governance. Um, and uh, there were at least three separate examples that I know of, and there may be more, in Bosnia and Herzegovina, of people who had themselves involved, got involved in corruption. One amongst the police, where a group of police were uh, certainly, international police, were certainly involved in the um, uh, trafficked women um, issues that were going on there. One uh, amongst an organization which was distributing aid, where some of that aid got siphoned off, uh, and the third was a corruption related to the customs service. And you have to deal with these very hard, uh, indeed, and I hope we did. Um, what I think is, is, is not acceptable but I could never persuade the international community to, to do this, but I think we have to, is that if these people uh, are guilty of corruption, they have to be seen, justice has to be seen to be done. 
They have to be brought before a court. They have to be charged. Far too frequently, uh, international corrupt civil servants were allowed to melt out of Bosnia, melt back into their home communities, and no further legal action was ever taken. Personally, I'm quite in favour of ensuring that within sensible limits, and there are some sensible limits, they should be subject to domestic jurisdiction if they're conducting actions which are clearly against domestic law. Um, now, this leads me to another point, which is, I hope you'll think is a, is a related one. You know, one of the things which is not properly understood is that if you are an international community in somebody else's country, you are accountable to the people of that country. You know, my job was formally and legally to be accountable to the international community. I was the international community's civil servant, uh, um, international community mission head. But I made it very clear that I was also accountable to the people of Bosnia and Herzegovina. They had a right to see um, the accounts of the Office of the High Representative. They were published. It seems to me completely scandalous that in Afghanistan, various NGOs have refused to produce their accounts. The accounts um, of, the, of the international organizations that are not in the public domain cannot be scrutinized. Uh, and I think that's a very, very bad example to be setting. If you're in somebody else's country, helping them, sometimes with very considerable power, to be able to rebuild, um, uh, um, rebuild uh, their state, then you are accountable to them, and openness and uh, transparency is a key part of that process. And that's the best way, it seems to me, to overcome um, the corruption problem, which inevitably is there uh, in any of these organizations. Yeah, gentleman at the back. Thank you. It's a very, very, very important question, sir, and if you'll forgive me just a moment to try and respond to it. I mean, first of all, um, let me give you the, the bleak scenario. Um, we are living through a period of time um, where one fundamental phenomenon, which has occurred many times before, is going to be the dominant feature of the next four or five decades. And it is the extraordinarily powerful tech shift in the tectonic plates of power. Power is residing now around the shores of the Atlantic. In the next 20 years, I'm very convinced uh, that power will be residing to a much greater degree around the, uh, around the, the rim of the Pacific. Um, and it is going to be the dominant fact of your lives, guys. Now, it's happened before in history. Power has shifted from one empire to another, from one structure to another. This, we happen to be living at the cusp of a moment of change, and the world has coped with it, usually not coped with it without violence of one sort or another. Our problem is that we have overlaid on this a number of other enormous challenges of a completely unique sort that have never occurred before. We also have to deal with the question of resource scarcity, against that background of shifting power. And by the way, I mean, I guess in the next 10 or 15 years, we were talking about it with George earlier on, I guess, you know, you and I will wake up, some of us in this room will wake up and discover we ain't the first economy any longer. We're actually the second economy. And by the way, 
You know, if you look at our country, most civilized Western countries, they're not, they're not held together by democracy. They're held together by the prospect of rising economic aspirations. If you change that, even if you talk about it relative, in relative terms, not absolute terms, you are changing the context in which we govern ourselves and assure our own security, our own stability. But we have, on top of this shift of power, we have to deal with the immense problems of resource conflict as the world becomes... Uh, world appetites for the, for the consumption of resources gets higher. And the issue um, of, uh, of global warming um, uh, on top of that. And on top, overlaid on top of that is the rise of fanaticism in the world of faith. And I'm not talking just about the Muslim faith, incidentally. I'm not talking about Islam. We, if you want to see religious bigots and fanatics, you don't just look east of Great Britain. Uh, <laughs> just recognize that. Um, so, so these are these are going to be these are going to be extremely turbulent times, uh, and I I, um, I am pretty pessimistic. If we want to order a period of profound change, we are going to need more strategic vision than I see around in the world amongst our leaders at the moment. Now, you ask a question which is slightly different, which is the question about legality. I'm writing a book. Um, uh, it's going to be published in May. It'll be about 20 quid, I guess. Um, <laughs> I was going to call it The Bandaged Finger. I'm a great, I'm a great fan of Kipling. Um, there is a, a wonderful quatrain in Kipling called The Lords of the Copybook Heading. The, 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 uh, the poem's called The Lords of the Copybook Heading. The quatrain, forgive me, it's got a rather brutal phrase in it. Uh, it goes, as it was in the animal kingdom, so it is with the race of man. Three things remain constant since social progress began. The dog goes back to his vomit. The sow goes back to her mire. And the burnt fool's bandaged finger goes wobbling back to the fire. Uh, so I was going to call this the bandaged finger. Why do we keep on making these mistakes time and time again? I think it's the publishers told me yesterday that they want to call it Never Again Iraq. Um, which is, <laughs> I, I don't mind it. But not, 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 not a bad title. Um, there is a chapter in it on international law. Um, and I want to make a couple of three points. Forgive me for going on a little long. I want to make a couple of three points to you. First of all, international law is not fully formed. It's work in progress. It's like the common law of England. It's being assembled little by painful, bit, untidily in some places. Uh, and, um, and it isn't a smooth and easy passage, and the work is not yet completed. I think it will be. It'll be one of the great buttresses that enables us to move forward in a more peaceful fashion in the future. And that's why this, is, this, this question is so important. Now, the first point to make to you is that the United Nations Security Council may be the most important forum for the establishing of international law, but it's not the only one. There are others too. I'll give you one example. Um, when I was in the Albanian villages south of Pristina, when they were being bombarded by the full battle force of the Serb army in 1998, and I went to see Milosevic the day afterwards, uh, I accused him of breaches of the Geneva Convention. They predate the United Nations Security Council by a long, long time. And I went and gave evidence. I said to Milosevic, I will see you next in The Hague for the day's work, which I've just seen, uh, because you will be indicted under the Geneva Convention. I came back, I said to Blair indict them now. If you indict, these guys are more frightened of an indictment before The Hague than they were of NATO bombers at that stage. We could have prevented the war. But we were using not the UN Security Council, but the Geneva Convention. By the way, I went and gave evidence against Milosevic on exactly that uh, um, in the early part of his trial. And I'm off to The Hague um, the week after next to give evidence against Milosevic's right-hand man, Milutinovic, on the same basis. Um, so 
although the legitimation for an action can come from the Security Council, you could take action consistent with international law, which was not necessarily um, uh, agreed to by the Security Council. There are other mechanisms while still being legal under international law. Indeed, if you want an example of stretching the law beyond its reasonable boundaries, Kosovo was the example. Blair used, and I encouraged him to use, so I'm not going you know, to blame him for this, um, he used the right, what has now become known as the right to protect, that a state, that the international community is entitled to intervene in the domestic jurisdiction of another state if that state is so abusing its citizens as to be a profound uh, breach of international law and the effects of which are to destabilize the peace of the region. That was the Kosovo legal justification, and everybody regarded it as being extremely thin, if not, only, if not non-existent. But the fact that we did it meant that at present... Under the recent uh, World Council, um, the, the World Summit Declaration has now enshrined in law the responsibility to protect. In other words, a state has a responsibility to protect its individual citizens according to international law, and the international community now has a right to intervene if they fail to do that. Now, whether we use that, I don't know, but formally that's on the books. So what I think I'm saying to you here is that this business of international law is really quite tricky. However... My guess is, for what it's worth, that post-Iraq and post-Afghanistan, and we might start looking at a post-Iraq world, maybe we'll talk about that in a moment, um, I think that it is very unlikely that foreign leaders will want to engage again in this kind of adventurism on a unilateralist basis. I think it is very unlikely that domestic populations, whether in the United States or in Britain, will allow their leaders to do this without having more formal legal justification. And I think it's very unlikely that the UN Security Council will be as biddable in the future as they have in the past to give legal cover for these kind of operations. So I guess what's going to happen in the future, and frankly I rather, I rather welcome this, I do very much welcome this, uh, is that the UN Security Council under the new peace-building commission that's been established in the UN will be required uh, to legitimate action before states will take action um, as the framework to, to make sure that actions in future are unquestionably legal on the one hand and on the other hand have multilateral support. So to sum up my answer to your question, legally, technically, it is not necessary um, to go through the UN Security Council, but I guess real politics post-Iraq is going to make it necessary and a good thing too. Sir. Mm. You've touched on Kosovo just on the edge. You also talked about neighbouring, uh, the whole point of neighbouring relationships. I wonder if you could just say a word about Kosovo because it's very popular. It is, and I'm very gloomy about it. I talked in my speech about the need to have a common destination. If you can have a common destination around which the constructive forces in a country can gather with the international community around a common project, then I think you have created the circumstances in which you can stabilize that state more easily. Unhappily in Kosovo, we completely failed after the war ended in 1999 to provide an answer to the one question everybody wanted to have answered, which was, what is the status of Kosovo? Now, uh, and it's blatantly, blindingly obvious to me and I think everybody else, especially to the Kosovo Albanians and probably to the Serbs too, if only we'd said it at the time, that the one thing that can't happen was that Kosovo could be again governed by Belgrade. 
And the truth is that the Serbs, by their actions in Kosovo, by Milosevic's action, oughtn't to use Serbs. They're a very, very great nation, the Serbs. They were, had, a, had a dreadful leader in Milosevic. But Milosevic, by his actions in Kosovo, lost the moral right to govern that country on the basis of only 5% of the population. We should have said to Belgrade straight after that war finished, Belgrade, one thing is absolutely certain, Kosovo is not going to be run by Belgrade again. And I think we should have then said, and I actually produced a paper with Joe Biden, Senator Joe Biden, for both our governments, that we should have said to the Kosovars, Kosovars, when you have the attributes of a state, that is, you have stable government, you have effective human rights for all, um, you are able to ensure the rule of law, and you're dealing um, properly with your neighbors, no raiding into the pressure of value, no trying to raise up the Albanian Kosovo, Albanians in Tetova and Gostova in, in, in Macedonia, come back and talk to us about independence again. Now, we didn't do that. And the result was that the only question people want answered wasn't answered. There was a vacuum where that answer should have been. And what's happened in Kosovo is that the destructive forces have filled that vacuum with answers of their own. We will answer by force what you will not answer by rationality and logic. And so the result is, I think, we're in a very difficult position in Kosovo. Now, my view is that position has now been exacerbated considerably by delaying Marty, Marty Ahtasari's um, uh, final solution on the, on the state. It should have been announced about a month ago for reasons which I think are, are, are misjudgment. We have decided that the Serb elections are going to be held in January. We will announce the solution for Kosovo after January in the hope that that will assuage a shift to the nationalist right in Serbia. I think Shesha will do very well. I don't think it will. We should not be appeasing Belgrade. Uh, we should not be allowing Belgrade uh, yet again, to, to enjoy the delusion that Kosovo could be other than not part of Serbia. Now, that will cause difficulties, but we should be prepared to put our tin hats on and just ride that out. Um, and so I am pretty gloomy. I'm gloomy about the Balkans, sir. I think we are seeing a shift back in the Balkans now. Kosovo will not be helpful. Belgrade, I think, will shift to the right. Bosnia is stuck at the moment. They will move forward in time, but we'll go through a period of stasis before we start making progress again in the Balkans. Um, yes, I'm looking for... Please, yes. Do you subscribe to the theory, the, J, the hockey stick thing, or the J-curve theory of attainment of democracy? And secondly, uh, why are not you in charge of reconstructing Iraq? <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I was... Slight, slight diversion, because you've been going quite a long time, you could do it with a laugh. Um, when I was elected member of parliament for Yeovil, uh, first off in 1983, slightly to my surprise, and even more to the conservative surprise who'd held the seat for 73 years, um, we used to have to address National Farmers Union meetings. And very frightening for a candidate, Chris will remember, very frightening because they asked these technical farming questions and most of us haven't a clue. So I, 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 uh, I a large meeting of farmers in Somerton, maybe the bull in, red, the bull in Somerton or something, a room as big as this, I suppose, and I answered these questions as best I could. And one farmer put his hand up at the back and said, what do we think about the price of barley then? <laughs> and I said, I, I don't know anything about the price of barley. He said, I'm voting for E. So I couldn't work out this, and I couldn't work this out. Afterwards, when the meeting was over, I came up to him, and I said, well, I couldn't answer your question. Why are you prepared to vote for me? And he said, us asked the other two about the price of barley. They went on for half an hour, and us doesn't grow barley within 200 miley areas. <laughs> <laughs> So, so I, 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 always, I always promise that I... I'll come to you later, sir. I, I always promise that I'd answer questions very straightforwardly after that. I don't know what the J-curve in relation to democracy is. <laughs> I, 
I, I, I, do know, I do know what it is in relation to economics, but, but I've never heard it applied to democracy. However, look, I think that it is it's certainly never legal, and it's probably immoral, to intervene with troops in another person's country to impose democracy on them. I think it's up to them to decide whether they want to have democracy. And by the way, it's up to them to decide the form of democracy they want to have. You know, uh, this idea, we, we, we intervene like British gunboat diplomacy of the 19th century, that we are going to impose on you the system structures and democracy that's applicable in the Midwest of America and to a Middle Eastern country. Um, and I think that's you know, wrong, by the way. I think you could intervene for good government. I think you can intervene for the rule of law. I think you can intervene in order to establish justice. I think you can intervene in order to give people a choice. But what they choose is up to them. I was in a conference last week with some rather senior administration officials in Washington, and one of them said, ah, well, you know, our big idea is democracy. And I said, no, it's not. You know, you're not even very good at it yourselves. And by the way, neither are we. Uh, our big idea is good governance. Our big idea is the rule of law. Our big idea is the market-based economy. And if you manage to create that in a country and give people a choice, they will choose democracy. Democracy is the consequence that arrives out of this. It's not the purpose of it. And I think it's a very important point. You, know, you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I'm sure you're all studying it closely. Um, you know, if you think about this devastated country when a war has just finished and people are frightened out of their wits, what do they want? Well, look at Maslow. What they want first is security. They want a job. They want to have a home to live in. And if you said, I'm not going to give you security, I'm not going to give you a job, I'm not going to give you a home, but I'm going to give you democracy, you're going to get a rather dusty answer. Um, so I think the whole democratic question is a question which comes later. And by the way, you know, let's just, I mean, just take the case of an Islamic country. Let's remember that Islam is the most democratic religion there is. There's no pope. There's no archbishop of Canterbury. Every imam is elected. So they already have a structure of democracy. It may not be our secular democracy, but running alongside any democratic institution you create, you also have the democracy of Islam. Uh, and you can see the difference between the two in Iran. You can see the difference between the opinions of the imams and the opinions of Ahmadinejad. And is there a difference between the two? And yes, there is. So when you create a democracy for a country like, or when you ask people if they want to have a democracy and allow them to create their own, don't be surprised if it doesn't look entirely like ours. And if they choose to have, sorry, I will offend you now, Sharia law as part of that structure of law, I don't like it. It's offensive to me and inimical to you. But that's their choice, it seems to me, not ours. Uh, and I think that's just a, a fundamental point about you're not, it is not the business of interveners to recreate their own country in another place. It's the business of interveners to give them the benefit of good government, justice, and let them choose for themselves. Yes, sir, I know you have a very... Thanks.
the equation. And overall, if they actually had a system where you got people who, who were in opposition to these anti-democratic parties and um, facilitated them to... Yeah, that's, that's, uh, you, you could, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that goes on, uh, and it's quite right and proper that there is, and we should realise that post, you know, uh, post a war, post um, uh, um, a, a tyrannical regime when that has fallen, it's probable that the quiet, decent, herbivorous, liberal voice like mine um, isn't very loudly heard. Um, it's quite difficult to be a liberal in these circumstances. And it is, it seems to me, part of the international community's job to give extra weighting, to give these people a chance to come forward because it's on the pluralist view of society in the end that you will hope to create a stabi stability. On the other hand, what the international community does quite frequently, and what I think is taking that to the wrong extent, is then to seek to electorally engineer, to bring these people who have not got uh, uh, not yet won widespread public support into government against the democratic wishes. And that's what happened before I got to Bosnia. Uh, we did deliberate um, political engineering, electoral engineering, to get our friends into power. We're not very good at choosing our friends, by the way. Uh, we're really not. Um, uh, and whenever we choose our friends and try and put them in power, we nearly always end up with egg on our face. I was faced with quite a... Quite a a crisis in my early days when the country went to vote and voted to put the nationalists back in. Uh, and all my international colleagues, you can't work with those people, you can't work with those people. And I, I said, well, I'm sorry, <laughs> this is a democracy. People are allowed to vote who they want to vote. And if, if, you know, if I am a servant of the Bosnian people, I have to work with the people they vote, they, they work with, uh, they, they elect. And that's what we did. That wasn't easy, but it was, I think we changed the nationalist parties enormously in the process. So I agree with you that we do have to seek to grow the alternative democratic voices, the liberal democratic voices, the civil society, and we must give a certain weighting. But at the end of the day, if you're trying to create a democracy, you must be prepared to work with the people that are elected by the people of that country. And there's a reason for that, which is this. I don't know if any of you have read Rupert Smith's quite remarkable book called The Utility of Force. Rupert Smith says that uh, modern warfare is fought in the theater of public opinion. And unless you win public opinion, you cannot win the war. Well, if that's true of these wars, it's doubly true of the peace. You have to bring the public with you. You, have to, you cannot um, create a state democracy peace unless you can bring public support with you. Here's a fact, a rather shocking one. When the British troops went into Basra, um, we had about 60 to 65 percent. MOD has regular opinion pollings in Basra. We had about 60 to 65 percent in favor of the presence of the British troops in Basra. Basra. Today, 95 percent are, are against the British troops being there. Now, you know, that can happen. It doesn't mean to say you've lost their support forever. It happened in Northern Ireland. When I walked into Northern Ireland as a young soldier in 1969, we were greeted by the Catholics with, uh, with uh, um, sandwiches and, and cups of tea. We lost their support. When that happens, you have very patiently and over a long time just to rebuild that support again. You have to do it. And you know, things like Abu Ghraib and Hadita are devastating, do devastating damage to your capacity to do that. Uh, so whether you like it or not, you have to work with the people who have public support. Um, and you cannot go around simply rejecting them because they don't, they don't, they, you, you don't like them very much. Um, yeah. Um, let's, yes, please. And then I come over to you, sir, over there. Yeah, please. Um, my name is Kristen Spear. I'm a fellow of the RSA. I just have a couple of questions. One is that when you speak about people choosing, that's to suggest 
suggests that they know that there are choices, that they are educated and can make a choice. And I feel that one of the problems is not choosing democracy, but is in choosing anything at all. If you simply have no knowledge of what else there is available. And in the Middle East, I would imagine that must be quite a big problem. There's no cultural, political, or economic background to the country that have allowed Are you sure? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a very, very, very big question, this. I mean, I think, uh, whilst not denying the substance of what you say and the force of what you say, because it's very self-evidently a powerful thought. Um, I suspect there are more political mistakes made by underestimating the intelligence of the electorate um, than overestimating it. And I think it's a quite dangerous thing. It's quite dangerous the thing to say, ah, well, they shouldn't have the choice because they don't know how to use the choice and they're not educated to do so. Now, I don't say it should never be done, but I do say that it's a quite a dangerous thing. I don't think that the people of Iraq are unsophisticated, unintelligent, and uneducated more than the people of Britain are. <laughs> what, about, uh, what about Afghanistan? Um, well, um, you are dealing arguably with a more difficult question there. But let me revert back to, to this proposition then. Um, if it is true, and I think it is, that you cannot bring peace unless you follow policies that have public support, then you have to have them buying in to your propositions. Um, then, you know, one way or the other, you need to be with the people who can provide you with that support. So, you know, whether you do it through democracy or other means is an interesting question. I mean, let me let me give you let me give you a very sort of simple example, if I can, um, maybe two. I suspect, I suspect that the people of Cuba support Fidel Castro. I suspect that there is public support for Fidel Castro in Cuba. The fact that it isn't a democracy doesn't mean to say that he does not have public support. Now, it may be offensive to us that it's impossible to get public support without a democracy, um, but I suspect that that's the case. Um, let me give you another example. The word democracy is not mentioned in the American Constitution. Nowhere. No one has said uh, that the United States has to be a democracy. The American Constitution is about governance. It's about how you govern a nation. It's about the rule of law. It's about being subject to the law. The American people have chosen democracy as the means by which they deliver the good governments laid out in their Constitution. Now... I think what I'm, it's a very difficult question, and I'm, I'm not providing you with as clear an answer as I'd like to, which lets you know that it's a question that I can't quite answer fully either. Um, but I think I would take refuge in the idea that democracy isn't the only means by which governance can take place with public support. Um, and secondly, um, that 
if you want to have a democracy, that's not at your choice, it's at theirs, if they choose to have one. And if they choose to have a democracy, then you have to live with the outcome rather than seeking to override it. But look, let me agree with you to this extent. These are not, as some of our friends on the other side of the Atlantic would like us to believe, black and white issues. They're not black and white issues. They are grey and varying shades of grey, and they require judgment uh, in order to apply them. Sorry, I can't do better than that. Yes, sir, I promised you. Um, How are we doing? No, it's not. No, no, it's not. Now, look, we failed in Iraq. Uh, let's just face up to that. I, mean, you know, I, um, I happen to be um, on the side of those who believe that Saddam Hussein had to be removed by force. Maybe history will show that that judgment was the wrong one. Um, but there is no doubt whatsoever that uh, none of us could have predicted that they'd make such a mess of the peace building afterwards. And the result is that we have failed in Iraq. At least we have failed... We, we, we cannot now succeed in achieving the over-ambitious aims we set for ourselves in Iraq. I think there's only one, am, only one aim left in Iraq at the moment, and I'll tell you what I think it is, uh, which is achievable and important. But the hard fact is we have lost control of events in Iraq. Events now control us. And that, incidentally, includes the events uh, the, the, the surrounding what will now be our withdrawal. There's no other subject on, the, on, on being talked about. It isn't if we withdraw, it's when and how and in what circumstances. And we can't control those events either, by the way. Um, you know, we are in that extremely dangerous territory where policy does not determine outcomes, it merely provides you a better, the best opportunity of achieving hopes. So uh, you know, I don't think we can define that our withdrawal from Iraq or our withdrawal from Basra will necessarily result in stability or, uh, the, or an even worse situation following, following afterwards. And that's the tragedy of this. My worry is the world will say, having had such pain in Iraq, we will never intervene again. That will make future decades, for reasons we discussed earlier, even more difficult. Now, what is the aim? It seems to me there is one aim left that is achievable and important in Iraq, and that is to ensure that Iraq, as a federal state, it will obviously be a federal state, remains a unitary state. So it's federal but unitary. Um, the real tragedy will occur if we withdraw and it, it internally collapses into two, three, four, five, fifteen, whatever it is, uh, statelets. And what that will mean, a vacuum, it'll mean the, a lawless space in which terrorism breeds, it will mean that Turkey from the north, um, Iran from the northeast, um, Syria from the north will all start playing in that, Saudi Arabia will all start playing in that space, and it will be a very dangerous thing indeed. Uh, so the only circumstances in which we can withdraw with dignity and have any chance of leaving behind stability is that if we preserve the unity of the, of the Iraq space. Now, fortunately, I guess 
Syria and Iran, maybe not Iran, but can't be sure. I'm very certain about Syria, and certainly the other neighbors do not want to see a vacuum of chaos on their borders. So what we should be doing now, it seems to me, is bringing them into a broader regional settlement. That settlement can't be achieved unless at last you resolve the Palestine question. The Americans simply have been totally blind in failing to realize unless you solve Palestine on the basis of justice, you cannot get out of Iraq on the basis of dignity. So you need a, a regional structure, part of which is a re final resolution of the Palestine question, part of which is uh, a guaranteed status for a unitary nature of Iraq, a Dayton, if you like, for Iraq, into which Iran, Syria, and the other neighbors buy. Now, by the way, the Americans can't do this. They have lost all leverage as a result of their failures in Iraq, but the European Union could. And there is a group of nations uh, called the Neighbors Forum, established by Turkey, been going for about three years now, it consists of Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Jordan, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and to which they've just invited the European Union on the one hand and the United Nations on the other. A ready-made structure, it seems to me, to try and put together such an overarching structure. Uh, we're running short of time. Do we want to stop now? We do, Ray. Okay. I'm so sorry those I didn't get, 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 get round to. Paddy, the, the warmth and uh, strength of that applause says everything, I think. I, first of all, want to give a vote of thanks to the university for their 40 years of excellence, another night of excellence here in the facilities they provided, uh, on be, uh, and to say that on behalf of the Royal Society of Arts. But uh, mainly, I want to say to you many thanks for uh, uh, an evening which left, has left us inevitably, given the complexity of it all, with probably as many more questions raised than we came with, but such is the nature of the events that we're engaged in. Uh, the reality that you've brought to things, something that, that we all strive for, to get people to understand how you can't just have a strategy, you've got to have operational capacity as well and keep those two things together. And the minute it splits apart, that's when things go wrong on the ground. Uh, you've demonstrated that superbly. Uh, I was left uh, reflecting again back to the diaries on that. Your diaries told me what political leaders do uh, in a way I hadn't understood before and how they do it, I, I really don't know. Without sleep, I think, is, is the main point. Um, you started to give me an indication, give us an indication of what UN high representatives do, uh, and for that, many thanks indeed. I'm left with one question which I'd still like to put to you before you go back to replanting your garden and... Uh, Iransi and all those, uh, that, those th times that you deserve in your life, are you going to take up something else big? What is it no. that comes next? No, no, defi no. definitely My no wife was here, she would say, definitely no. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, one, so, uh, she's not seeing so you can get away with there, it. There's a wonderful, I, I would say I'm loving my life at the moment. It's a portfolio life. I, I've really loved writing this book. It's, it's corrugated my thoughts a lot, uh, and I'm able to come and do these things. I'm a little frightened about the space ahead. There's a wonderful line of, of is it Bla it's Blaise Pascal, regarding space. He says, La silence de ces espaces infinis me fray. The silence of these eternal spaces frightens me. I'm a little worried about the silence of the eternal spaces, but otherwise, no. All we can say is many thanks. <laughs>